Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your observations, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. Post it in the YouTube community tab, hit triple digit comments yet again. Well done, everybody. Thank you for everyone who participates. And I'm excited. Great list of topics this week and great week of tennis. I love this week on tour. You got the side-by-side 500s, no buys. We love no buys. And uh, the race has been really fun to watch. Fritz got into a absolute war, lost it. Uh, Tsitsipas has played a couple of good matches. Runa with a couple of wins. First back-to-back wins for Runa since Wimbledon. What else do we got? Yeah, it's been fun. First question's about Runa, and it comes from member Road to Mecca. Hi, Gil. Enjoy the show consistently. That's what we go for. Consistency is key. Coaching-wise, any thoughts on if Becker's influence can help Runa? I guess he's been so bad slash injured, he can't do worse than his past few weeks. But does he need a new proper skills-based coach or more of a mind and big-name influence like Boris? Also, any thoughts on some backlash to Raducanu saying coaches may not have liked her asking so many questions? Should coaches have evidence to justify their methods for players who need it? Sorry for the long-winded questions. Keep up the good work. All right, thanks. Very interesting coaching news, certainly, coming into this week with uh, Boris Becker coming on board for Holger. I mean, I'll say this. It's very different than the Novak situation. And, you know, you're right to kind of look at, I think, Boris's role for Novak and recognize how different it needs to be for Holger. Djokovic, I believe at the time, had six major titles when Becker came on board uh, because I think he was six and seven in major finals. I think what Becker brought to Djokovic was an aura, a presence, a certain confidence that, look, I don't know how, what percent of the credit you can give to Becker, but certainly there was a line in the sand that you can draw in Novak Djokovic's career that when Becker joined the camp, Novak started to become really, really good at winning major finals. And before Becker came along, it was a 50-50, if not worse, proposition for Djokovic in major finals. So I think Djokovic liked the presence of Boris in his box, but... Was he a technician? Did he have to develop Novak in any significant way? That wasn't necessary. And even like Goran with the way he retooled the serve, I'm not sure that that Becker did anything of the kind with Djokovic. As far as I know, he didn't. Yeah, Runa's in a different spot here. There's a lot of development to be had. The tactics, 
the the shot selection, the way he feels out points and constructs points. There might be technical work with the forehand to be done. There might be some other stuff with the serve uh, that that can be done. The return, to me, looks like he's a little bit unsure of himself in terms of how he wants to return serve recently. So there's way more technical stuff and tactical stuff where you look at Holger and it's like, okay, there's development here that, that needs to be done. And does Becker have, is Becker that kind of coach? Does he have the ability to do that? I think it's fair to question that. Now, I'm not, look, I, I don't know if this is going to work or not, what the buy-in is going to look like and, and all of that, but I'm surprised that they didn't go back to Lars Christensen. And I don't know what happened there. Lars Christensen is the coach, for those of you who don't know, who, who did develop Holger Runa from a young age. And he is a highly technical coach. And Annika Holger's mother, when they broke broke the relationship with uh, with Patrick after the U.S. Open, Annika was on the record saying that you know she thought that Lars should come back into play. Now Lars Christensen has been coaching Clara Towson, the other really good Danish player. I don't know what happened there. Was it did they ask Lars to come back and Lars st stayed with um, with Clara? On, you know, was that his choice to do so? That's a possibility. I don't know these things. Again, I want to be very clear about that. Uh, or, you know, was there any fracturing that happened with Patrick coming into the fold? Because I know, you know, they were trying to do a thing where Lars and Patrick were going to be, you know, going to both be the coach at the same time. I don't think it worked. Reading into, you know, reading between the lines, some of the things that Annika Runa has said, it seems like that didn't work. That's not surprising. It's it's a really, really hard thing to have two coaches who are both kind of alphas when it comes to coaching at the same time. Really tough thing to manage. So it sounds like it didn't work. All that to say, however they got to Boris, I don't know how they did. It's going to be interesting to see if it works out. And I'm not saying Boris can do it. I'm not saying he can't do it. But what I would say is his success with Novak is not going to really be a good indication of whether or not he will succeed in this role as Holger Runa's coach. I will say this. I just called Runa's match against um, Sebastian Baez. Best I've seen him play in a, in a really long time. Best I've seen him play since Wimbledon. Best the serve has looked. Best I've seen him serve easily since Wimbledon. So that was, that was a positive. And it just seemed like his head was in it. Decision-making was a little bit more sound. I wasn't seeing the crazy, desperate net rushes when there was no opening to come forward. I wasn't seeing a lot of irresponsibly aggressive backhands or forehands for that matter. So yeah, it was a, it was a solid, solid performance for Holger. Seems like he's healthy now and he's going the right direction. All right, the next part of this question is about Raducanu. I saw this quote by Emma. That she said maybe some coaches don't like it. That I ask a lot of tough questions. That's kind of a, a reversal from what I've heard about the the philosophy. You know that that Emma's parents have brought to managing her career. You know I have always heard that their outlook on it, their view on it, is they want a lot of different coaches coming in teaching Emma 
their knowledge, you know, what they know and giving Emma kind of their flavor. And then they want to bring someone else after the coach has delivered all that the coach has to offer. So it's almost like a, like a knowledge dump and like a carousel. Like I've heard that's the philosophy, which I think is not an awesome way to go about it. And like, why has Radu Kanu had so many coaches? As everything I've heard is pointed to, it's by design. And this is a sharp left turn from that. And quite frankly, I don't really believe that this is the thing. Like, I do not believe that coaches have stopped working with Radu Kanu because she's asking too many tough questions. So I just don't really buy it. And I'm going to leave it at that. But other than that, I would say if it were to be true, yeah, coaches should be able to explain their methods. And I know for a fact that Andre Agassi asked a lot of questions. He would always say why. I, I heard a great interview with uh, his trainer, uh, Gil Reyes. Gil Reyes talked about that. Like Andre, anytime you told Andre Agassi to do something, he'd be like, why? He wants to understand it. Yeah. Any coach should be able to explain why they're doing something because the player, some players want to understand the reasons for everything they're doing, and that is perfectly okay. So if Emma asks a lot of tough questions, more power to her, but I don't really believe that coaches have left because she's asking questions because it's just, again, different from what I've heard before. All right, next one is from Brandon. In a hypothetical situation, if Federer and Alcaraz were to play, would it be a good or bad stylistic matchup for either player? Okay, I mean, savvy way to ask the question. And by the way, this question got more likes than any other question. It got 30 likes because you know, maybe you've been watching the channel long enough. You know that if you asked who would win, I would not have, I would not have selected the comment because I hate that question. I never answer it. I don't have a, I don't, nothing obvious comes to mind on this, to be completely honest. I do think that, Alcaraz prefers to play someone who's not going to be constantly attacking him and someone who's going to give him some rhythm and some, you know, more neutral balls. I think, you know, Alcaraz would prefer someone who does a lot more of that than Federer, right? Federer makes you defend a lot generally. And we've talked about how Alcaraz, while he's good at defending, sometimes it seems like he doesn't like to do it. And he sometimes resists kind of the he'll he'll get a little bit anxious and get a little bit overzealous trying to uh keep himself out of those defensive positions if he feels like he's not in control. So we've seen that before. Federer would do a good job at kind of making Alcaraz play a lot of defense. Generally a good thing. But also I think Alcaraz would really enjoy playing Roger, as would Roger enjoy playing Carlos Alcaraz. Like, they really obviously like to play a lot of different-looking points and throw a lot of variety at their opponents. And I think it would be just, just an enjoyable experience for both of them, which, quite frankly, for Alcaraz and Federer, that, that helps them. I think they, they like that. Like Alcaraz, Dan Evans has played, just an example, Dan Evans has played some great tennis against Alcaraz. Alcaraz has always played 
awesome against Dan Evans because he likes someone who's going to come to net, someone who's going to drop shot, someone who's going to slice, someone who's going to mix in angles and mix in paces. That's fun for Alcaraz. He prefers that to a guy like like Yannick Sinner or let me give some guys who Alcaraz didn't play. Let's say Alcaraz played Robin Soderling. Let's say Alcaraz played Tomas Burdic. Yes, maybe Burdic a little bit limited, limited, Soderling a little bit limited, but you kind of get the point. That's the guy, those are the kind of guys who I don't think Alcaraz likes to play because they just kind of give him like super monotonous uh, tier one pace and attack returns and serve big and crush the first ball. And you don't kind of, he doesn't get to kind of work the point and get into rallies. That's what I think Alcaraz dislikes. I don't think, I don't know that Roger brings that kind of offensive game Alcaraz's way. So look, I know this wasn't a definitive answer on like who would have the edge if they played, but ultimately, I don't know. I think that, I think that they would both really enjoy the matchup and it would probably be pretty competitive. Stylistically, obviously. I'm not really talking about levels here. All right, let's go to the next one. It's from Mr. Black Global. Brooksby banned for 18 months? What happened? Okay, fair enough. Fair enough on this comment. Yeah, Brooksby banned for 18 months. He's going to appeal to the, uh, what is it called? The Court of uh, Arbitration. The, the Court of Sports Arbitration. Something like that. I think I'm butchering it. Here's what I won't butcher. Um, so, Brooksby, here's what happened. Let's start from the beginning. Every player on tour is in a is in a WADA pool, a testing pool. And if you are in that pool, it means that you are subject to an online system. Uh, an online whereabouts system developed by WADA. It's called Atoms. So any player has uh, this app called Atoms on their phone. And obviously there's also, you can do it on the web as well. And whenever you are out of competition, you need to deliver pretty detailed reports about where you are so that they can drug test you out of competition at all times. Out of competition means before a tournament, that that like before you're entered in a tournament, after a tournament ends, uh, off season is out of competition. Anytime you are not currently playing in a tournament, you are out of competition. And if you are out of competition, every single day you must provide a one hour period of time, and you are entering this into the app every day. Now, maybe you can do it in advance and you can be like, this is what it looks like this week. I'm not ex entirely sure about that. I've never personally used the app, but I have watched the instructional videos that WADA has provided to the players that teaches them how to use the app. Essentially, you need to have a one-hour period with an address, and you are essentially saying that um, this is where a doping agent can find me today. Example, between 3 p.m. and 4 p.m., I am going to be at this hotel. And 
if the if WADA decides to test you that day, that is when they are going to come within that window. Okay, so if you fail, if you have three whereabouts violations within one year, and there are two types of violations, either you didn't fill out the form, so you didn't report your whereabouts, or you left you left uh, incomplete information, like you didn't put your address, or you didn't leave a time, something like that. That's one. That's an example of a violation. Or you did fill out the whereabouts form, but when the doping agent came to test you, you were not where you said you were going to be. So again, three violations in a year, and you are subject to a suspension of two years. Brooksby has taken responsibility for the first two violations, and he has said, my bad, you're right, I, I broke the rules. But he maintains that the third one should be cast aside, should be excused. And it sounds like, I mean, Brooksby left a pretty detailed account on his Instagram. Essentially what happened was the hotel was not in his name, the one that he was staying at. Uh, it was in somebody else's name on his team. The doping agent came to the hotel to test Jensen and went to the hotel clerk and was like, I'm looking for Jensen Brooksby. And I guess the hotel clerk was like, we don't have a Jensen Brooksby here. They called his cell phone. It was on silent. He didn't pick up. Point is, the doping agent and Brooksby, who says that he was awake in his hotel room, completely available to be tested, they never made the connection, which was his third doping violation. So the tribunal, which investigated the situation, said that Brooksby Jensen was at high fault for the third violation. So it's not a maximum suspension. That would be 24 months. But, you know, it's slightly reduced, but it's still pretty bad. It's 18 months. That is what happened. I've already kind of given my spiel on my issues with the kind of larger kind of thing, you know, that with, with doping and, and WADA and the, their relationship with the ATP. I won't repeat it. Um, I think some of you disagreed with me. Some of you agreed with me. It seems to be a mixed bag. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is sad. This is unfortunate. Look, this, this seems like bad risk management. I mean, let me, let me say this. Like, if this happened to me, I know what my dad would say. My dad would be like, look, the third one is unfortunate, but that's why you can't blow off the first two. That's bad risk management. You know, and players have talked about, sometimes the app is finicky. You know, sometimes stuff happens. You know that there's that risk. So if, if there's a risk that something like this is going to happen, you need to be mindful as to not get two violations in 12 months and leave yourself vulnerable for that. That's just bad risk management. But um, young people, and Brooksby's a young person, they, uh, they tend to sometimes not have great risk management. It's not really a characteristic of young men, is it? No, not really. So it stinks. Certainly there's some fault for Brooksby. Certainly it seems pretty harsh um, for somebody who didn't actually take PEDs to be suspended for 18 months. 
and you know i i have plenty of reason to believe that that he didn't um michael emer is in the same situation he's been suspended for whereabouts failures he is furious about it like last i checked michael emer said he's retiring because of it i don't actually think he's retiring but yeah it, it it's unfortunate i'm going to leave it at that i have nothing else to say about this Next one is from Adam. Hi, Gil. I know it might be too early, but for fun, can you predict who will win the next four Grand Slams in the Paris Olympics? Thank you for your content. Really enjoying it. No, I can't. I'm sorry. And I, I included this comment because it got 22 likes. I don't predict the slams before the draws come out because I, I'm a human. And if I make predictions, they will be in my head when the draws come out and they will bias me. No matter how much I want to be like, oh, clean slate. No, I will have a bias, whether it be I'm hedging my bets and I don't want to pick that person because I picked them before the year started or, you know, last October in this case, and I'm going to pick someone else here. Or I don't want to change my pick because I thought that it was them back then and I'm just going to stick with it. I, I, don't, I don't want that thinking to enter my head. So I do not predict slams until the draw comes out. That way I come in, no, nothing in my head, clear head. Now, sometimes I'm thinking in the lead-in, I'm thinking I know what I'm going to do. Sometimes. Or I think I know what I'm going to do. But I at least don't want to be on the record putting that out there. So no. Next one is from... Damn Libigiani. Hi, Gil. How do you think Yannick will perform at the ATP Finals? The fast indoor conditions could suit his game, but beating high-ranked opponents has always been tricky for him, except for Carlos, maybe. So I don't know what results to expect from him. Thank you for the excellent job on MMA. Thank you. I just love Sinner indoors. I think he's so good indoors, which would make sense. I think he he got plenty of experience on, on indoor hard courts based on where he grew up playing tennis, which was essentially almost Austria. You know, we, we know Northeast Italy, South Tyrol, I believe it's called. Um, you know, snowy, mountainous region, a lot of skiing, which Sinner took advantage of. Anyway, he's amazing indoors. So this year, if you look at his record, after beating Sinego today, he's 9-1 and one indoors in 2023. He won the title in Montpellier. His only losses to Medvedev in the Rotterdam final. He played really well in Rotterdam. And uh, now here he is in Vienna looking excellent. He got his revenge win over Ben Shelton after Shelton beat him in Shanghai. It's funny, my sense with Sinner, and this happened, it seems like this happens to someone every year. I'm expecting really big things from him this week. Paris, Bercy. Might he be one of those guys who does a little bit too much winning in the lead up to, because he's also had, you know, he had a huge Asian swing. I mean, what did, he went seven and one over the course of the Asian swing. So he has big Asian swing. Let's say he goes deep in Vienna, deep in Paris, Bercy. I just feel like he, it can be one of those cases of somebody who wins a little bit too much and then is just totally gassed for the finals in Turin. Now, obviously it's in Italy. There's that extra motivation, although that can present some challenges in itself. 
Here's what I will say about Sinner, and like this is gut feeling. At the end of the day, I just like him in these conditions. I think he might peak a little bit early on in in this indoor hardcore season. It it happens sometimes. Like I think it happened to Medvedev. Was it was it 2021? Where I don't know if it was 2021. He kind of tore it up. He had a big indoor hardcore season, and then I think he went like 0 for three round robin stage. I know we struggled last year in Turin, but every match was close. I don't know. That's kind of my take. Sinner's playing amazing. His forehand's on fire. Okay, this next one is from Roch VP. Hi, Gil. My question is about net courts. My impression is that they were the more disruptive, is that they were more disruptive and harder to respond Nowadays, the players seem to react more often than not to reach the ball for a good shot. Do you know if this is real and what could cause it? The agility of players, more average topspin that could propel the ball, changes in the net. Thank you. <laughs> okay, this comment's amazing. I had to include this, even though it only got one like. Because it's hilarious. So basically, this person is saying that in the past... Net cords used to usually uh, be an advantage for the player who hit the net cord. And now it's the player who is receiving the net cord who generally has the advantage. The main factor here is how tight you wind the net, usually. If you wind the net super tight, it's going to help the player who's retrieving the net cord because usually the ball pops up. And if the net's really, really loose, it's going to trickle over and sometimes bounce twice as if it's a good drop shot. That's usually the factor. I will say this. It's amazing how quick players are moving forward. Like a big thing, if you... I mean, I know this happens to me when I'm playing tennis because I'm a lot slower than pros. How often will you be playing in a rally and your opponent will hit a ball that's actually not a good shot, like it lands short unintentionally, but it lands so short that you don't quite get up to the ball. And either you hit the ball from a terrible contact point way too low and you know, you're know you in a tricky spot. Or even sometimes you, you don't get to it. Like it bounces twice before you can get there. Notice that never happens to a pro. You almost never see a ground stroke that is accidentally short that results in a double bounce. So... Like, why does that happen so often to, to I don't know, uh, amateurs? And it, it, like, never happens to pros? It's because of the movement. The pros just get up to the ball so quickly that you're never really going to get the ball to bounce twice in front of a pro unless you're really hitting an excellent drop shot. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen. So, I think, uh, yeah, the movement forward is really exceptional. But most of this always comes down to the net. But I just think this is a really funny question to ask, like, and a really funny observation. All right, from Alpine. Hey, Gil, the battle for the last ATP final spot is getting interesting. Who do you think is going to get it? And who's someone that has an outside chance of qualifying? Uh, but it wouldn't be surprising if they make a big run at Paris and qualify. All right, let's pull this up. I'm just going to pull it up so I can look at it right now. Um... So I think I said last week, if not the week before, that I thought Fritz was going to get in. 
uh, Taylor is now falling behind Runa in Basel because Taylor just lost in the round of 16. Runa just advanced to the quarterfinal. They came into Basel like 50 points apart from each other. Fritz and Runa. That's for seven. And, uh, that's for uh, eight and nine. I still think Zverev and Tsitsipas are going to get in. And I think that eighth spot is up for grabs. I feel like it's, you know, who performs better? Runa versus Fritz. But then other than that, it's, okay, the next guys, you look at Hercotch, Rude, Paul, Demonor, Shelton, Hatchinov. Can any of them win Paris? So if they win Paris, that's a totally separate story. And out of those guys, there's only one who I could really see winning Paris, and that is Hercotch. I still think Hercotch looks awesome. He uh, just crushed Struff. I mean, Struff, not in great form, still coming back from the hip injury. But uh, he's alive in Basel. Struff's, uh, Hercotch is in the quarterfinal. So I'll say this. I think Hercotch has the best shot to win Paris. But I think if nobody wins Paris among those players, then at this point, given what I saw from Runa today, I think it's kind of back to feeling like Holger is going to hang on to that eight spot. But as you can kind of tell, it's so fluid. I've gone back and forth a bunch. By the way, Rude lost today. I also called that match against Stricker. I, I didn't think he'd win that match. I honestly, I thought Stricker would win the match. And it's just the classic aggressive lefty. You know, we've seen Rude lose to Umber last year. We saw him lose to Shelton last year. We saw him lose to Liam Brody this year. Quick, low-bouncing surface. Stricker's got the flat backhand. So, like, I like him in both cross courts, right? He keeps Rude's. I talked about this uh, in the Liam Brody match at Wimbledon. Stricker had the the forehand to backhand pattern. Stricker just overpowers and outguns Rude in that cross court. And Stricker's forehand down the line was great. And then backhand a forehand on the deuce side, Stricker's ball stays so low, it bothers Rude's forehand as well. And Casper can't really can't really find the contact points that makes his forehand really good. So, And also Stricker uh, served extremely well. Rude had trouble neutralizing on um, first serve returns. So yeah, Stricker beat Rude, which is kind of an aside. Um, I think at this point, it's going to be Runa unless Hercotch wins Paris. Next one is from, I'm just going to say Nick. Hey Gil, since the offseason is coming up, I want to ask you if you could say one thing that each of the top 10 players could work on for next season, whether that be te uh, technical, mental, etc. All right, this is one of these comments that... Uh, I've been getting a lot of these, like these top 10 rundowns. Keep them coming. I mean, they're great for TikTok. Follow me on TikTok, folks. Gil Gross Analysis. Okay, right? That's my handle, right? Pretty sure that's my handle. Okay, so this is one thing to improve in the offseason. Number one, Novak Djokovic. So difficult to say. So hard to say. But for Novak, at this point, the key continues to just be stay healthy. Sorry, but that's the key. 
Carlos Alcaraz, first serve. Beef up the first serve. Get more purchase out of your slice serve and your flat serve. Daniil Medvedev, that one's easy. Get comfortable with alternate return positions. Be able to stand closer in on return to fend off the serve and volley. Easy. Yannick Sinner, couple of different directions I can take this one. I'm just going to say continue to work on the forehand drop shot and the volleys. Five, Andre Rublev. Backhand defense. Maybe this is recency bias from bias from his last couple uh, losses, but I feel like Rublev has done a good job working on his speed. But the more I watch him, the more I feel like his speed goes to waste a lot of the time because sometimes he gets his legs there and he still is not able to defend and neutralize. So uh, it's mostly on the backhand, but I would say I want him to drill defense. Like he needs to get better at making balls out of the corners. High, you know, that that high heavy topspin defense, uh, the slice defense, both. Just, I think he needs to drill that and train that. Okay, number six, Holger Runa. Shot selection. It's the shot selection I want to see, that, that I really want to see get better. And I don't know if this is something that really can get better in the offseason. There, there's certainly, there are plenty, there's plenty of drilling and training you can do to improve shot selection. Ultimately, that's what I want to see improve for Runa. I want him to start to read the game better and read incoming ball, read opponent court position, and just make the right decisions about what shots to play and when. Number nine, Taylor Fritz. It's fu really funny. Okay, here's a story on this one. I was interviewing him after his fourth round win at the U.S. Open. Maybe it was after his win against Jakob Mensik. I don't know. But I forget who he beat. But it was after his fourth round win at the Open. And uh, Jose Higueras wanted to know. And Jose Higueras, who's on the broadcast, and he used to train with Fritz, he wanted to know what Taylor would say. So I literally said, question from your old coach, Jose Higueras, what are you going to be looking to work on uh, for next year? And, uh, you know, maybe it wasn't the best time to ask him that question, but I, I blame it was, you know, Ho Jose was willing to take the fall for that because Jose was curious. And he literally was like, same thing I've been working on. This is, I'm paraphrasing, but this is basically what he said. He was like, same thing I've been working on for four years now, uh, working on coming forward and finishing volleys better or volleying better. And he's like, maybe, you know, maybe it'll finally work. Essentially, what he said is like, I, I keep training this and it's just not getting better, but I'm just going to keep training it and hopefully it'll get there. That was pretty much his answer. So, yeah, that's pretty much the next step for Taylor. I mean, he just needs to impose himself. He could just get his offensive game to another level if he can work on the transition game and volley better. Okay, number 10, Alexander Zverev. He's an interesting one, man. Very interesting. I mean, <coughs> sorry, I couldn't uh, turn off my mic in time for that one. Sorry about that. Um, it's kind of been the same stuff for a while. I would love if he could hit a kick serve, but I don't have a lot of hope for that ever happening. 
So Yeah, it's it's like what should Zverev get better at right now? It feels like he's been a, a finished product for quite a long time now, and it's just about getting over the hump mentally. I mean, we know that, right? I'm not breaking any ground with that take. So what should he work on? What should Zverev work on? Something I, I think I've seen him do well this year, and I think he needs to keep it up, is uh, just being unpredictable with the forehand, taking his forehand down the line more out of the deuce corner, flattening out that forehand, and also from the middle of the court, taking it inside out instead of getting predictable with the inside in. Because like Zverev's forehand is pretty good when he can get around the, the right side of the ball and kind of hook the ball. He's pretty good with that, but it's taken him a little bit longer to get comfortable attacking the ad side of the court with his forehand, right? Picture that, forehand's in the ad corner. And I've seen some improvement in that area. That's really good. He should continue to hammer that home. Sometimes it's not about working on weaknesses. And I know when I go through this list and I'm like, this is what needs this is what I want to see get better or this is what they should work on. I know, you know, you have that natural inclination to just talk about weaknesses. Uh, but in this case, it's something that I think he's done well this year, done better this year. And I would just double down on that so that in the big moments he has the confidence to continue to execute that like he has been. Next one is from Elias. My question is about Ben Shelton. You've said before that results during this stretch of the schedule shouldn't be taken very seriously in terms of a long-term projection, but there are exceptions. Example, Runa last year. Do you think Shelton has shown enough to be included among those exceptions, or does his abysmal performance between AO and USO make you not trust this run of form? Thank you for the analysis. Channel has definitely helped me watch tennis with a more knowledgeable eye. Good to hear. You're welcome. Thank you for the kind words. There's some nuance here. First of all, I think that Runa and Shelton, good comparison here. Because with, with Runa, first of all, we already knew that he was a great prospect, extremely talented. Before he did the four straight finals last fall, before he did that, we already knew, great talent. And then he exploded, for lack of a better term. He exploded. And when he exploded, you could have said, oh, wow, he's just going to tear it up. 2023, Australian Open, title contender. Oh, yeah, going to be going to be top five. He's going to have an Alcaraz-like year. Like you could have looked, if, if you were just extrapolating from what he did on the indoor hard courts, you would have thought, oh, the guy who just beat Novak Djokovic in the Paris-Bercy final, yeah, that guy's going to crush it. There's not going to be any challenges, no road bumps, and you would have been wrong. Um, that said, Runa has, I mean, he's had a 40-win season. He's had a borderline, he's on the, you know, he has a chance to make the year-end championships, and he's 20 years old. He made two Masters finals on clay. He only won one title. The majors were a little bit underwhelming, just a couple of quarterfinals, but all things considered, Amazing year for a 20-year-old in Holger Runa by any stretch. Unless you're comparing him to Alcaraz, putting him side-by-side side with Alcaraz, amazing year for Runa. I think it's a similar thing with Shelton here. Before 
the U.S. Open run happened, before this indoor hardcourt success and the Shanghai success happened, and the Tokyo success, Asian swing success, there you go. That's what I was looking for. Before that happened, I was already really high on him. I already think he's a great prospect, unbelievable raw, raw capability, terrific set of attributes, explosive athlete, projects to be one of the great serves in men's tennis, weapon of a forehand, great mental game, shows up when it counts. I mean, there's so much to like about him. So it's similar to Runa. The fact that he's having a ton of success here or that he had a ton of success in Asia, like I love that for him. That's great. That's a good thing for his career. There's been some eye-opening parts of, of how he's been playing. I think he looks so much better at net right now. Really uh, much more comfortable serve and volleying. Coming in behind second returns a lot. He's been loving that play. I think that's great. Again, uh, just using his short burst explosive athleticism is what I've been seeing from Shelton. And I think that's a good thing for him to be doing. So all of those things, yeah, I love it. But let's say Ben Shelton goes on and continues to go on an absolute tear here. Do I think it's going to be way harder for him to win in January outdoors when everybody's well-rested and Shelton's not like this really jubilant young player with unlimited energy who probably doesn't feel worn down at all right now like so many other players probably do? I mean, it's his first year on tour. Let's not forget that. Do I think it's going to be way harder for Ben Shelton to win in January? in Australia than it is for him to win this week and next week? Yes. It's way harder. Just like it was way harder for Holger Runa to win in January than it was for him to win in Basel and Paris and Sofia and all the great tournaments that he played so well at last year. It's harder because, again, there's a youth factor and... There's also a serving factor here. This time of year, indoors, if you're a hyper-offensive player who serves well and your serve gets hot, and Ben Shelton's serve is hot right now, um, but Runa's serve was hot last year. I mean, remember, he was hitting his second serves 110 miles per hour on average and not double faulting. Ever. Where's that? That went away. So if your serve gets hot, you're going to have a lot of success. Um, I don't know... You know, I, I understand that was a very, like, there was a lot of layers to that answer, and it wasn't a, you know, very straightforward answer. But this is not a straightforward question. Like, do I, what what is the question here? Do you think Shelton has shown enough to be included among those expectations? He should have high expectations next year, but the expectation should also be that it's going to be much harder than it was over the course of this indoor hardcourt season, there's going to be bumps in the road. And frankly, I think Shelton's first year as a top player is going to be 2025. That's my prediction right now. So I don't think it's going to be next year. I think next year is going to have its ups and downs. But I think the year after, he's going to be a top player. Next one is from G. Dalton. Hey, Gil, I want to ask which player that has not won a Grand Slam yet you think is more likely to do so before the other guys? 
okay? You have older guys like Zverev, Tsitsipas, or even Rublev that are definitely options. And then you have the younger guys like Sinner, Runa, and Rude that have shown they can go deep in a slam. Maybe give your top three if you think it's close and uh, love the vids. Keep up the great work. All right, this is kind of a variation of a question that I've definitely been, that I feel like I get asked like every three or four months, but obviously it's a really, really good question. And uh, like the inclination for people is to assume that way too many guys are going to win slams. Where the reality is, if you're not one of the three best players in the world, you're probably not going to win a major. Sorry. That's usually how it is. We don't like to think about that. Like, here's an example. I recently saw, this was just this week on Jose Morgado's Twitter, that um, obviously, like, the there are, what, four Americans in the top 20? Is it five? One, two, three. Well, there's four in the top 15. Okay, and then quarter is just outside the top 20. So four Americans in the top 15. And there was a tweet about that, and it was like, the question is, how many of them can win majors? And Jose Morgado said out of Ben Shelton, Francis Tiafo, Tommy Paul, and Taylor Fritz, that two of those players are going to win majors. To me, that's an insanity take. Insanity. Like, I know you want to you wanna believe, like, oh, Tiafo, he's made a semi. He can win one. Oh, Tommy Paul, he's made, he's made a semi. He can win one. Fritz, he won Indian Wells. He can win one. It's like, no. No, it's not how it it's not how it works. I'm sorry, Novak Djokovic, it's not it's not Djokovic is going to retire and then it's going to be open season and you can be the 7th best player in the world and you're going to win a major. You might if you're one of the lucky ones, but you're probably not going to. Odds will be against you. That's how it continues to be. So out of that group can I'm just giving you before I answer this question, I'm giving you my line of thinking. It's can you be one of the three best players in the world? I don't think Tiafo can. I don't think Fritz can. I don't think Tommy Paul can. So my prediction is that, no, they don't win majors. Shelton still can. It's possible. There's enough, uh, there's enough reason to think that he might be able to, you know, make improvements and develop in a way that can get him there. So I wanted to express that sentiment because I think it's just widely misunderstood how many players are going to win slams. And like, to that point, among these players, how many people when Zverev were coming up were like, yup, he's going to win a slam. Tsitsipas, yup, going to win a slam. Maybe less so Rublev. But like Sinner, Runa, Rude, yup, going to win a slam. It's like, nah. We say this about too many players. Most players that we say are going to win a slam, they're not going to win a slam. Okay. Let me answer the question now. Um, I certainly favor the younger guys. That would be no surprise, right? You guys aren't surprised by that because to me, most of these guys, they have to improve in order to get good enough to win one. And I have more faith in the young guys to improve versus the older guys. Zverev and Tsitsipas, if they don't get better, Zverev mentally, Tsitsipas technically, then there's a chance, more, more likely than not, they won't win one. Um, so Sinner is to me the most likely by far um, out of this group. Even though Runa, well, Sinner and Runa, sorry. And I know I've been saying Runa to this question because I've just felt like, okay, there's really an unbelievable amount of improvement and he's like already a top 10 player and 
he just has so much, so much room for improvement. But I think with Sinner, I really trust his process, his coaches, his mentality, his ability to train. The big three, they were all so good at tinkering and improving, right? You've heard me talk about this before. That was like one of their greatest powers. Sinner actually has that. He might not be as athletically gifted. He might not be as talented as them in in other ways, but I just have so much faith in Sinner's ability to to just improve. So it's Sinner and Runa. By far, by far, those are the two guys out of out of this list that inspire confidence for me that they're gonna win one. Alright, we're gonna do we're gonna do three more. Our next one's from Mac. Hey, Gil, what is your take on the recent foot and back injury of Alcaraz that forced him out of Basel? I was wondering if this could potentially be a year-ending injury, and if not, what should our expectations for him be the last couple of tournaments, specifically the ATP Finals? All right, well, since this comment was written, Alcaraz said, I'm going to be back. I'm healthy. I'm going to play Paris-Bercy. I'm going to play ATP Finals. So this comment is sort of moot. At the same time, same thing with Monte Carlo. Same thing with Acapulco. When a guy, when a top, top player like Alcaraz and a player who actually values rest and rehabilitation, when a player like that pulls out of an event that is not a big event, like is not a mandatory event, I'll say, and if there's reason to believe in the schedule that it might be a good time to take a break and they say I'm pulling out with injury, don't worry about the injury. More than likely, they're fine. Everybody at this time of year is hurting. And it's just a matter of, are you in the position to say, I'm going to pull out of an event? Or are you not in the position to do that and you are just going to play through it? But for Alcaraz, look, the goals are larger. He wants to play well in Bear C and maybe win it. He wants to maybe win his first year-end championship. First time he's getting to play the year-end championship. So he values preservation, rehabilitation. This is an ATP 500. He's pulling out. Um, I did see, I'm going to talk about an, another member of the media, um, but you know, I'm, I, I hate to be vague when I talk about these things, so I always just name names. I saw Christopher Clary uh, send a tweet that was kind of like, well, seems like Alcaraz has been banged up. I don't think that's fair. If he were banged up, he wouldn't have played Beijing. So... Like, why would, why would he have played a 500 in Beijing right before Shanghai if he was banged up? He had plenty of time to rest, ample time to rest before that, and he played those events. So I don't think that his, uh, his losses should be uh, interpreted as he was banged up because everybody's banged up this time of year. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, don't freak out about injuries to top when when top players pull out of non-mandatory events, take it with a grain of salt. They're probably fine and just resting. Next one from Max. Hi Gil, is there a tennis equivalent to other sports to predict if a prospect will succeed or have a high chance to fulfill their potential? IE, baseball figured out high school pitchers with very fast fastballs were actually poor predictors and strikeout to walk ratio was much better. In basketball, rebounds, rebounds translate very well, etc. 
What are some predictors that are outside the accepted norm in tennis? Thanks for the great work. Is this true about baseball? Because, I don't know, have, have, have things changed in the last, well, since I was in high school? Have things changed in the last, like, seven, eight years? Because a lot of my buddies were baseball players, and it seems like the only thing colleges cared about was how fast your fastball was. Um, you, you ask a really good question here, though. Your question is, is there something in tennis that does a good job of predicting talent? Uh, the fact is, the basic answer to this question is no. Because in these other sports, you have multi-million, you know, hundred million dollar corporations and organizations that are invested, that have a competitive advantage, a business advantage, if they are able to evaluate talent properly. So, I mean, let me put this into, right, how New York Yankees worth. Okay. The Yankees are a I way undersold. I should have said more. Okay. The Yankees are worth $7.1 billion. So you have a $7.1 billion corporation that has a large interest in being able to evaluate talent. And that's true for every team in the league. True in, you know, all of these sports with teams. So you better believe that the smartest people are going to get together and try to find an edge and to try to find a system that does this well. And even still, they're going to screw up. They're going to draft players that don't pan out. They're going to make terrible trades. They're going to mess up. But in tennis, yeah, maybe maybe some of the companies like Wilson and Nike, they want to figure out who's good or... Some of the tennis agents might want to figure out who's good at a young age. But let's be real. A, not even a fraction of the effort goes into trying to figure out which, you know, which tennis players are going to be good. Because nobody has a vested interest in it. So that's, that's really the answer to this question. Next one from House of, of Leaves. And by the way, I could talk about like what I would look for. But maybe we'll save that for another mailbag because I'm just running low on time here. Uh, hey, Gil, what are your thoughts of the rumors of a Masters 1000 in Saudi Arabia being introduced in 2025? Do you think it would be too intense for players to have two big tournaments in the first month of the year after the short offseason? All right. Uh, throwing all of the, you know, throwing the sports washing topic aside uh, in, in this discussion, you know, this is strictly a scheduling question. No, I mean I don't think I don't think it's uh I don't think it's a scheduling issue at all. I think you're going to have maybe some butting of heads with Tennis Australia. Like I'm pretty sure Saudi Arabia would have to buy some of these licenses off of Tennis Australia, right? Um like the uh like the United Cup, right? So I think there's some political stuff, stuff with the licenses. I'm talking about tennis politics right now. Uh, where they would have to sort that out. But in terms of like what would it mean for the players, I think most players do want to play before the Australian Open. Most players play before the Australian Open anyway. If you just move back the Australian Open maybe a week, then it seems perfectly plausible to just start the year with the Masters 1000. I, I, I don't see an issue with that. Now, 
if you make January a more arduous proposition and you have more players and you have Masters 1000 and then you have a major, look, the part of the schedule that is really going to be hard to justify after that is February. I mean, February is going to get hammered here if this happens because you're not going to get a lot of top players wanting to play a Rotterdam anymore or a Doha or a Dubai uh, Golden Swing. These are the events that I think are going to kind of start to look less and less attractive if there's a Masters 1000 in January. That was a big diatribe. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with United Cup, with Saudi Arabia trying to get in the mix, what happens. We'll see how it plays out. All right? That's all I got uh, for this week. We will have, of course, a Bear Sea preview, although I do think it might come out a couple of days later than usual, either Saturday or Sunday. And uh, Monday match analysis on Vienna and Basel. Can't wait for all that. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty <laughs> presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.